Good afternoon to our Rockefeller Capital Management clients, our colleagues, other friends of Rockefeller. And as Joe said, welcome to the 12th in this special series, Uniquely Rockefeller Insights that we're bringing to clients during this historic time. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend and partner, David Rockefeller Jr., who's going to moderate the program. I'll come back on uh, at the end for a very brief close. David Rockefeller Jr. has made his mark inside this family with the iconic name, both as a businessman and as a philanthropist. He's been chairman of Rockefeller Foundation, chairman of Rockefeller Brothers Fund. He was chairman of Rock & Co., the predecessor firm to Rockefeller Capital Management, and he sits on our board of directors at Rockefeller Capital Management. He's also been true to his family's legacy of environmental preservation. He served as citizen chair of the National Parks Foundation for 10 years. He also founded Sailors for Sea, which was born out of his great passion for sailing and joined forces with the global ocean conservation organization Oceana, where he's now a director. David and so many of the Rockefeller family members are great partners of ours in building Rockefeller Capital Management. As I said, David sits on our board and he's joined there by Peter O'Neill, who also represents the Rockefeller family on our board of directors. The Rockefeller family is also an owner of Rockefeller Capital Management alongside Viking. They have an iconic family name that resonates across American history and they have been tremendous partners in every possible way. Today, David has put together a terrific program of outstanding leaders across business and philanthropy. He's focused and they're focused on topics of relevance for all of us in the world that we live today. One last point before I turn it over to David. I want to highlight that this panel couldn't happen on a more important day, Juneteenth, marking the end of slavery in the United States 155 years ago to the day. So with that, David, welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here and thanks again for doing this. Thanks so much, Greg. Really appreciate that introduction. Delighted to be here. And by the way, for anyone in video mode, I am sporting a 90 day hair do, but uh, I do see the barber on Monday, so don't worry. Um, I'm feeling challenged today, Greg, to fill in as moderator of this distinguished panel, a role, as you said, you have so ably filled uh, over the past several months. You didn't say the ably part. And uh, we'll come back to you at the conclusion of this hour for your usual final words. So relax and enjoy. Thank you, David. It goes without saying uh, that we live in strange and difficult times. A climate crisis followed by a health crisis which triggered an economic crisis and then exposed a long-standing social crisis epitomized by multiple incidents of racist police brutality and reinvigoration of the Black Lives Matter movement. But this is the context in which Rockefeller Capital Management is working to achieve its internal goals, support its rapidly expanding client base, and protect its employees. As such, this is surely the time for us to emphasize 
as a wealth management business, the importance of being fair while being competitive and doing good while doing well. Now, we're very lucky today, as Greg said, to have three panelists who are highly qualified to speak about the importance of investing in effective people, in good ideas, and in essential values. Let me introduce them to you. First, Sir Ronald Cohen is chairman of the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment and the Portland Trust. He is a co-founder of Social Finance UK, USA and Israel, of Bridges Fund Management and Big Society Capital, and he was previously executive chairman of Apex Partners, the global venture capital and private equity firm. Over the past 20 years, Ronnie has chaired the Social Impact Investment Task Force established under the UK's presidency of the G8, the Social Investment Task Force, and the Commission on Unclaimed Assets. In 2012, he received the Rockefeller Foundation's Innovation Award in Social Finance. For nearly two decades, his pioneering initiatives in driving impact investment have catalyzed a number of global, global efforts, each focused on using private capital to serve social and environmental good. And he has a new book coming out this month titled Impact, Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change. The second panelist is Melissa Berman. She's the president and CEO of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, RPA, one of the world's leading philanthropic advisory organizations, originally part of the Rockefeller family office and now a sister organization of Rockefeller Capital Management. RPA's mission is to help donors create thoughtful, effective philanthropy throughout the world. Melissa has led RPA for the past 18 years, helping major philanthropists and foundations around the globe. She is also an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Business School. The third panelist is Dr. Cecilia Conrad. She is CEO of Lever for Change and a managing director at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Lever for Change is a nonprofit affiliate of MacArthur whose mission is to unlock philanthropic capital and accelerate solutions to the world's biggest social challenges. In addition, Dr. Conrad oversees the MacArthur Fellows Program, colloquially known as the Genius Grants, and MacArthur's 100 and Change Program, the Foundation's annual competition for a single $100 million grant to help solve a critical problem of our time. Cecilia received her PhD in economics at Stanford University entered academia as an econ economics professor at Duke, Barnard, and then Pomona College, where she became also vice president for academic affairs and dean. She has been recognized for her teaching, leadership, and publications on gender and race in economics, including California's Carnegie Professor of the Year, the National Urban League's Woman of Power Award, and the National Economic Association's Samuel Z. Westerfield Award. Okay, now we go to the questions. Ronnie, 
Let me start with you and thanks so much from, for joining us from across the Atlantic. You are a venture capitalist, investor, and philanthropist. Can you tell us briefly about your personal history and how you became a pioneer of what you call the Impact Revolution Movement? Well, David, first may I say what a great pleasure it is to be uh, here uh, in this meeting uh, with you and, uh, and uh, all our panelists um, and, and with Greg, whom I have known for a very long time. I suppose my starting point um, in answering your question should be that I always felt that the purpose of my life was greater than just becoming financially successful. And perhaps part of the reason for that is that I left Egypt as a refugee at the age of 11, came to the UK when I couldn't speak English and was helped. Uh, I got a first class education at Oxford and then, and then Harvard. And I went into the venture capital business because I thought I could create jobs at the time in the 70s when the UK was uh, suffering very high uh, unemployment. But I suppose the catalyst for my last 20 years was a call from the British Treasury, an unexpected call, which asked me whether I'd look at the issue of poverty. And when I set up the Social Investment Task Force and began with a group of half a dozen uh, wonderful people to look at how we tackle poverty and other social issues, I discovered something very strange. I discovered that we'd been fantastic at uh, inventing ways of bringing capital to those who want to make money, and I'd benefited from that as a venture capitalist and private equity and investor. But if we looked at how the non-profit sector was trying to help those in need, we hadn't been able to bring investment to social entrepreneurs. And so I asked myself the question, how can we do that? And that is a journey of the last 20 years, which leads us to our conversation today. Wonderful, thank you for that start, Ronnie. Uh, much appreciated and a very moving story. I wish we had time to hear more of it. Um, but can you next tell us about this new book entitled, as I reported, Impact Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change? Uh, I noticed on its back cover, you were quoted as saying, envisage a world where inequality is shrinking, where natural resources are regenerated and people can benefit from shared prosperity. Wonderful, uh, wonderful goals. What two lessons would you like our audience to take away from this remarkable new publication? The first lesson, um, the first lesson, David, is we don't have to stick with an economic system that can't solve the problems we face. And we are able to do good and to do well at the same time and to do even better financially by doing so. What the book 
concentrates on is the fact that we have lived through a period where there has been an evolution in thinking and in preferences. We've seen consumers desert companies whose products um, they had purchased before and no longer purchase because they don't identify with their values. We found uh, a younger generation in particular uh, that is not prepared to work for companies that are not achieving a higher purpose than just making money. And most significantly in the context of our conversation today, uh, we have seen $30 trillion go to investments that are called ESG investments, environmental, social and governance investments, where at the very least they want to minimize the harm that companies are bringing to our environment and to uh, society. And that 30 trillion represents, as you know, uh, David, 15% of the world's investable assets. If it's coming out of professionally managed money, then it's twice that percentage. So it's over tipping point. And so something has changed in the world. And the book says that change is shifting from thinking about optimizing risk and return when we make investment decisions and business decisions to optimizing risk return and impact. So that's the first lesson. And the book gives a lot of examples of investors, of entrepreneurs, of big businesses that are already engaged in optimizing risk return and impact. The second lesson is a particularly important one because of COVID-19 and the crisis that it has engendered. In many ways, David, it's a time which is similar to 1929. In 1929, after the crash, investors sat up and said, what, can we really have been investing in companies without measuring their profit properly? Each one picking its own accounting policies and no one verifying these numbers. And of course, it led to gap accounting and it led to the use of auditors. Today, we face a similar question. Have we really been investing in companies and thinking only about the profit they make and not about the damage that they cause to the environment and to, uh, and to people? so that our governments then have to tax all of us to remedy that. And the second lesson is, it is possible to measure impact now. Had Adam Smith thought of that, he'd have called it the invisible heart of markets. Uh, it is possible to measure it. We have the technology now to measure the impact of a, of a product, uh, from a company's product, its employment, uh, and, its, uh, and its operations, and to measure it on people and on uh, planet. And so the second lesson is, if we really want to solve the challenges we face, including the challenges that we find in society uh, with lack of diversity, 
you know, which is uppermost in all our minds, given what's been happening in the United States, then we cannot solve that problem by tinkering with our system. We have to change our system by bringing impact alongside profit to the center of our economic system so that it generates solutions and not problems. That's a wonderful set of answers. Thank you so much. Uh, focusing both on a change in consumer behavior and a change in our capacity to uh, to measure what we are trying to measure, which is beyond, as you say, risk return factors. Um, I think you began to answer this next question, Ronnie, but you might want to expand a little on it. Um, if we talk about the global context in which we're having this conversation, and this context has changed since you all agreed to be part of the uh, panel, whether it's climate, COVID-19, a probable recession, uh, although you might have a thought about that, and Black Lives Matter. So are these game changers for impact investing? And if so, in which direction and how? I believe, David, that they are game changers. The reason is that we went into this crisis with big issues of inequality. We saw what happened in violent rebellion against our system uh, with the Gilets Jaunes in, in France, with the similar uh, demonstrations uh, in uh, Chile, in, in the Lebanon, and inequality was a big issue. And as you and I know, coming out of crises, inequality increases usually, it does not reduce. The stimulus packages that our governments have to put into place affect the more vulnerable in a negative way. The reason is that actions to bring quick results concentrate on the big uh, companies and the big financial institutions. And little concern is really given to the impact on vulnerable people. Now, we're going to have many more vulnerable people after this um, crisis than we had before. The reason is that a large number of the very high number of unemployed uh, is likely not to be able to go back to the same job. And so I know of your environmental uh, concerns and we want to have a sustainable and a just recovery from COVID. Now, if you want to have a sustainable and just recovery, you have to change something in the way in which we design our stimulus packages and we use companies and investors to achieve these goals. Why? Because governments are going to be laden with more debt than ever before. In the United States, we're going to be at the level of the GNP, $20 trillion uh, worth of, of debt. Many companies are going to be laden with debt, uh, of course. Uh, but companies are going to be our best chance of bringing about social and environmental improvement. And so impact-weighted financial accounts are the equivalent of GAP in 1929. The big step we have to take now is for our governments to mandate that our companies must publish 
financial accounts which are weighted for their product and employment and environmental impact. Now, if we do that, we will change the way in which companies employ, in which companies design products to help uh, vulnerable members of our, uh, of, of our population. And we know that investors are looking for that. So happy to expand on impact weighted accounts if you're interested, but there's a big effort at Harvard Business School to design them. Later this year, we will be publishing the accounts of 2,500 companies weighted for their environmental impact. And next year, we will add to that their employment um, uh, impact and their product impact. Wonderful. Uh, I really appreciate that. And um, the term, just noting for our audience, the term impact investing was coined at the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center, and you later received the Foundation's Innovation Award in Social Finance. And as you also know, Rockefeller Capital Management is currently deeply committed to ESG investing. But um, could you say a little more about how these extra financial lenses, if you will, um, how big a deal they will be in the investment world and how fast? Uh, are we ahead of the curve here? Are we behind? Where are we? Well, many, um, many investment managers have described impact as a mega trend. Uh, it's clear uh, that uh, the younger generation in particular uh, does not feel that uh, the world we live in uh, reflects uh, its uh, values. And so we find ourselves in, I think, a major shift, a major shift uh, in the way in which investment and business decisions are going to be taken. And I just want to give you one example of how if we mandate that companies have to publish impact weighted accounts, this will change the way in which investors value companies. Let us take the issue of diversity. And let us take a company which is uh, spending you know, seven billion uh, it's a true example in the United States on its wage bill, but lacks diversity. Let us take the demographics around the different units of this company and compare it with the percentage employment that it has of uh, ethnic groups that are excluded. And uh, let's measure the salary levels where there is this gap. If we do that, then we get the monetization, if you like, the monetary impact of exclusion. And in impact-weighted accounts, that would reduce the profit of that company. Now, what would it do if that company all of a sudden found that instead of a $7 billion wage bill being considered a positive contribution to society, after you've deducted 4 billion for lack 
of diversity, uh, it's only left with three and its profits are reduced by that. So I think putting on this impact lens, which ESG does, is great. But so long as we don't measure impact, we will not change the behavior of, uh, of companies. So um, thanks very much for that. And obviously uh, a big if in terms of the government's action, but we'll know more in November about the potential for that. Let me just uh, have you give, if you would, a word of advice for us at Rockefeller Capital Management. Uh, if you were to give us one word of advice, what would that be, Ronnie? I think listen to your younger clients. Uh, when they sit in meetings with their parents, uh, listen to what they're saying, because that tells you where the future is going to be. And what you will hear is what I have been saying. Wonderful, fantastic piece of advice. Really appreciate it, Ronnie. We'll come back to you at the end for your last thoughts. Um, now let me turn to you, Melissa. Um, and your first question is, uh, you lead the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, as I said before, where you help advise clients on creating thoughtful, effective philanthropy. Now, given the global pandemic and the national dialogue on social inequality, with an emphasis on black lives, what are you telling your clients today and what are they asking you? Are you unmuted? Uh, David, thank you very much, and my thanks to Rockefeller Capital Management as well for this opportunity. I'm sorry that video does not seem to be working for me today, but I want to assure all of you that I am wearing lipstick. Um, this is uh, a very remarkable time, and um, I think when we think about the pandemics that you're asking about, David, what strikes me is that both of these tragedies are about being able to breathe freely, both literally and metaphorically, and both of them reveal very broad systems of inequity around the world. In public health, we, we have to ask ourselves who is protected, who is safe, um, and we also recognize the interconnectedness of all of these issues. COVID itself disproportionately affects poor people and people of color, um, not just in the US, but around the world. So there's no simple cure to any of these challenges. Um, and a COVID vaccine will still leave us with a very weak and inequitable public health system, just as banning chokeholds by the police is not gonna really lead to true uh, equal justice in uh, our country. So what we're talking to donors about is sort of the three R's, which is that we recommend that you reassess, you realign, and you recommit. And what that means is looking at what you've been committed to um, and what you value very deeply, um, and whether you think your current philanthropy and social activism is reflecting that, um, 
to realign what you're doing against what you may think the moment calls for without abandoning the issues and the values and the causes that have been most important to you, and then recommitting, um, taking whatever steps you can to be uh, more directly involved, um, using more of your resources, and using more of your voice. So I think for many of us, we're seeing a much deeper commitment to trying to understand the root causes and the whole system. But nonetheless, that means there are, there should be, um, and there have always been different entry points for different kinds of donors and impact investors. We need both the shorter term tactical actions as well as the longer term uh, multi-year systems change initiatives. We need the COVID vaccine. We need to change how chokeholds are used. But for some people, there's an opportunity um, and an interest in looking to the whole criminal justice system, for example, the whole public health system, um, or as Ronnie was telling us, to use the lever of impact investing to fund uh, Black-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, low-income entrepreneurs. People of color and women get so little funding from the capital markets. For other people, it's about education and awareness. And I think one thing also that we suggest that people hold on to is that while we do feel that we're in the midst of a terrible storm, this kind of event for philanthropy is not a hurricane. It's not a one-time crisis. This is an, a, a series of one-time crises that, that are highlighting underlying and ongoing crises. Very, very strong response. Thank you, uh, Melissa. Um, let, let me turn from uh, an emphasis on uh, the donors to an emphasis on the recipients. Uh, and you began to speak about this. And I want to know how do you feel nonprofits are faring during this time of turmoil and uncertainty? Mm -hmm. And are there some sectors which have been hit disproportionately hard? Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you asked about that. The nonprofit sector um, is really in, in difficult shape uh, at this moment. Uh, in New York City, for example, 40% of nonprofits really don't have more than a couple months of cash uh, in excess of their normal operating costs. So they are always sort of on the brink. Um, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about arts organizations at this time. Um, I think that it's easy to reallocate away from them, but I think it's a big mistake to dismiss the importance and relevance of arts organizations. They really help create empathy. Uh, they really link people and, and, they, and they help us understand what it means to be fully human. I'm also pretty concerned about some of the smaller colleges and universities, uh, among them the historically black colleges and universities, but many others, and the towns that these, um, that these colleges and universities are in. Um, whose economies depend so much on being a college town. So there are these enormous ripple effects from a weakening nonprofit sector that also um, affect the entire economy. Thanks so much for that. And it's a, a good reminder uh, about the ecosystems in which these 
organizations, whether they're colleges or arts organizations, uh, exist, and how there there can be a toppling. Um, it's very concerning, certainly to me. Um, you have such a, a good view of the field of philanthropy, Melissa, in addition to uh, individual examples brought forward by your clients. Uh, so could you speak to recent, you might call them megatrends in philanthropy, and how vulnerable to negative public opinion will those foundations be which continue to emphasize the importance of perpetuity on the one hand, and conversely, how many foundations will now be making big bets to respond to the great needs uh, at this highly unusual time? Well, that's a very, that's an interesting, uh, complicated uh, question. I have to say, though, despite the enormity of the crises that we're facing, I'm, I'm really very optimistic about philanthropy. If you think about philanthropy as private resources for public good, that's a very expansive definition that includes not only donating and grant making, but also investing in advocacy and using voice and partnerships. All of that is open to many more people than ever before on our planet and is occurring at a much more rapid rate and growing. And we really have seen the emergence of a global culture of philanthropy. Um, and so there's a bigger, because there's a bigger set of tools for people to use, uh, we're seeing more impact investing. We're seeing higher payout rates from endowed foundations. We're seeing um, the growth of what Cecilia will talk to us about, open competitions to uncover innovation everywhere in the world. Um, lots of collaboration and partnerships to scale impact. And I think more and more donors as individuals and foundations as entities are reconsidering their time horizon, um, whether they want to meet the moment by um, accelerating payout or spending down, or whether they want to stay committed to a perpetuity timeline. I think that with a healthy discussion, about the timeline, we'll all see that there isn't a pure right or wrong answer to that question. Clearly issues around social justice and reducing poverty are going to take more than 10 years, for example, to combat. So there is a role for a pool of capital that has a very, very long-term time horizon, just as there is a role for pools of capital that are acting more in a more targeted and intensive way. What I think is, is important though, is that donors and foundations make that a thoughtful, active choice. Here, here. Thank you so much, uh, Melissa. And uh, we'll come back to you uh, at the end for some final thoughts. Really appreciate your participation. Um, and now Cecilia, thanks for your patience. And let me ask you the final set of questions. Um, and thanks so much for being here. You have had a distinguished professional life, to say the least, as an economist, a professor, a dean, and a foundation leader. But you told the panelists earlier a moving story about how you started down this track. Would you just share that story with us?
the story that led me to become an economist actually began in Texas, uh, which is, seems appropriate for this day of Juneteenth. In fact, I'm even wearing a little official Texas Juneteenth pin here. Uh, it goes to 1968 when I was 13 years old and completely obsessed with the turmoil that was happening around me in the US and around the world and addicted to watching the evening news. During one of the evening news broadcasts, I heard about a group of people called economists uh, who were busy renegotiating an international monetary agreement. And I just had no idea. I've never met an economist. Uh, what is this field? So I started to investigate it. And in my sort of 13 year old head, I thought that this would potentially be a tool to help me better understand the poverty and inequality and other issues that were so visible to me in the segregated community that I lived in. Uh, that started me on the path. Uh, my path to the PhD was aided by affirmative action. 1972, the AT&T, the old AT&T, reached a consent decree with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and they created a summer program to encourage minority students and women to go into uh, statistics and economics and physics and other fields. I had the opportunity to be in that program and then to receive a graduate fellowship from them. Um, after that, I ended up in uh, academia. I found my niche in small liberal arts colleges where I had the wonderful privilege of teaching amazing students many of whom are out there in the world now doing making change and also the opportunity to help as dean to nurture and develop a cohort of young faculty who are now moving into leadership roles but after 30 years in that space and maybe feeling a little jealous of some of my students who were out there on the front line i wanted something that was a bit more in the front row of trying to make social change happen and that led me to the macarthur foundation where I became really interested in the kinds of issues you just talked about with Melissa in terms of notions of perpetuity, but fundamentally bread and butter issues for economists. How should we allocate this resource? How do we best allocate it to have impact? Thinking about that led to the creation at MacArthur of a competition, a lever for change, I'm sorry, 100 and change, which was the first step, uh, a competition for a single $100 million grant that would make a serious dent in solving the world problems. And that has been a wild ride that eventually led to Lever for Change. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for that and what an incredible life. Uh, I hope you have many more years of story to tell. <laughs> uh, so let me turn and ask uh, something different. You've thought and written, uh, Cecilia, a lot uh, about the subject of empowerment, which is, of course, a word very much on our minds today, especially in regard to race. And I'm curious to know what some of the most effective ways you have found are to empower the less powerful. So <clears throat> I would think about, first of all, my notion of empowerment is basically the ability of someone to be able to shape their own destiny. Um, and there are preconditions for empowerment. There's having your basic needs met. There's having access to education and equitable access to education. 
there's having legal and civil rights uh, available to you where you live. And so much of what we think about in terms of looking at how can we empower more people and how can we respond to this moment that we're in and to the uh, needs that are out there and that have been persistent really for me have to go back to this issue of empowerment. Um, when I look back, one of the things that's been happening recently that's kind of exciting for me is that I've gotten re-energized around these issues. I have to admit that when I left doing this research as an academic, I took a bit of an unofficial sabbatical. But one of the things that I see is that we need to return to some solutions that actually have had an impact and have worked and see if those need to be revived again. For example, affirmative action, which I mentioned earlier. Affirmative action really, we only worked with it for about 10 years from 1972 to roughly 1980, so a little less than 10 years. But during that time, and there, there's clearly a, a lot of evidence that it had an impact on employment, on creating opportunities, on opening up, opening up occupations that were formerly unavailable. And in some recent research, there's evidence that even the temporary affirmative action that we had has had some persistent long-term effects. So I hope that in this moment of time, we'll start to look at those sorts of issues. We also need to turn to looking at uh, what is happening in philanthropy where in a couple of recent studies, one by Bridgespan and Echoing Green, and one by the ABFE, have really pointed to what is a disparity in uh, how much of the philanthropic dollars go to organizations led by people of color, or specifically Black-led organizations. Uh, one estimate is a $20 million gap between what goes to early stage white-led organizations versus black-led organizations. And when we talk about big bets, only a tiny percentage has gone to organizations led by people of color. So this is a space that philanthropy needs to look at itself, but also can become more active in pursuing this goal of empowerment. Well, that's wonderful guidance. And I sit on a couple of foundations, uh, family foundations, which are looking at this issue among others. So thank you so much for that guidance and I'm going to report it uh, back. Uh, finally, uh, you are the steward of the MacArthur Foundation's Fellows Program, otherwise known as I said earlier, as the Genius Grants, which focus on getting extra funds to highly effective individuals. Now, just to tell a little personal story, my grandfather, John D. Rockefeller Jr., once received a letter from a certain Dr. Albert Einstein uh -huh. who was requesting a $1,000 grant. My grandfather declined, but sent him a check for $2,000. <laughs> so my final question for you is how a foundation should balance supporting individual bright lights as opposed to addressing systemic issues through institutional grants? Not a small question, I know. No, not a small question. And, and the answer is that the portfolio really should have both. Uh, there is a need for the type of support that the fellows program gives to individuals that's an unfettered support, which may allow creative individuals to take risks that they might not otherwise be able to do. One of the things that is special about the fellows program is that it's open, it's uh, limited to US citizens, but it is all fields, all domains. 
And the other is the fact that it really relies very heavily on outside expertise. And we tried to transfer some of that information uh, to the model that we have set up for competitions. Uh, we are rely on openness in terms of being kind of anyone can apply. We've also relied on outside expertise. We have a panel of some of the world's greatest minds who evaluate those proposals. And what we try to do is to give the nonprofit organizations the agency to tell us how they'll go about addressing the particular issue or concern uh, that we have. Uh, that it has turned out to be a very powerful model. We are doing now, uh, we're taking what we learned from the first 100 and change and offering this to other donors, to other philanthropists, both foundations, individuals, small family foundations, and helping to support them in really going out to find the big ideas, to find the best ideas. Uh, we have right now uh, competitions going on climate change. We just closed one looking at creating durable futures for refugees, economic opportunity, one that was just recently announced on gender equity. Uh, all of these topics lean, lend themselves to really opening wide a search for solutions. And that's what we try to do with Lever for Change. So that's a wonderful response and uh, I think points out how when effectively managed a program that aims at highly successful and uh, creative individuals can have strategically uh, and systemic uh, impact. And I, I do believe in that. The Rockefeller Foundation, as you know, had the so-called Rocky Docs for many years, individuals who received grants and made great impact around the world, especially uh, in the developing world. And I wish they were still there today. Um, uh, let me just before I uh, we close this part of the conversation, Cecilia, ask you, even though we're not a college or a foundation, we're a business, but do you have any advice for us at Rockefeller Capital Management? Let me just start um, with this question of openness. One of the things that the recent events have really brought to mind is the responsibility that we all have, and particularly those who are in the corridors of, of economic power, who are, um, have access to decision makers and influence, to make sure that we are asking critical questions. And this is, it actually really ties for me and, and makes me very excited about what we heard earlier about this notion of impact metrics. Uh, the opportunity exists to really ask what impact are we having on climate? What impact are we having on, um, are, we, are we looking at diversity? Are we trying to make the world a better place? And, and have that as part of the decision-making that goes on within those organizations. We have problems, we have big problems, but we also have problems where there are solutions available. And so there is an opportunity, both through the profit-making activities and through uh, philanthropy to really make a dent. We are hearing you and uh, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Cecilia. It's just great to have you on this panel. And uh, now let me offer to each of the panelists 
in the same order uh, an opportunity for giving us a final thought, perhaps answering a question you wish I had asked. Uh, and could I suggest that you limit yourself to about two minutes each? Um, so you first, Ronnie. Thank you. Thank you, uh, David. Uh, we're just uh, following on from Cecilia's comment. Um, I think impact and the impact revolution is going to be as widespread as the tech revolution has been. If tech today is the water on which every ship sails, then I think impact will be another layer of water on top of that. Impact is going to disrupt the models of businesses in the way that technology, in a similar way the technology did, but it's also by its focus on outcomes and measuring outcomes rather than measuring activities, going to change the model of philanthropy. Uh, we're already beginning some of these changes uh, coming along. We are seeing changes in entrepreneurship and we see changes in big business. And I think it will even change the model of government, with government focusing less on spending money, on funding activities, and more on achieving outcomes and often paying for the outcomes rather than the activities. I think you, as a business and, and, and the family, uh, have played such a sterling role in improving the world that I can express the hope that you will be one of the leaders of this revolution, just as you were involved in starting it uh, through the Bellagio meeting that uh, named it. Thanks so much, Ronnie. And, and uh, I, I can't help asking one follow on question, which is how you think um, it is that government will play the role that it must play if all of this uh, revolution is to happen. Well, government has to play an enabling role, uh, David. Uh, if government mandates that companies must publish uh, impact-weighted accounts, uh, then that is already the, the first most important step since Adam Smith, really, uh, because it's bringing the invisible heart of markets, as I mentioned, to guide their invisible hand. But government should also have uh, in its cabinet a minister responsible for impact. Uh, it should have uh, under this uh, minister activities that involve the setting up of outcomes funds, uh, the use of new securities like social bonds and social impact uh, uh, bonds. Uh, there's a whole host of, there are nine different recommendations in, in the book. Um, there, there are a host of things that government can do. But if we want government to bring systemic change, we have in the same way that Roosevelt came up with a new deal and with a reshaping of our uh, financial system, we have now to come up with a different type of new deal, which is centered around the impact that our 
financial and economic activities create. I do agree, and um, we will be working as individuals, if not uh, from other uh, platforms, to uh, make sure that that happens. And much, much appreciated, Ronnie. Thank you so much. Um, let me turn to you then, Melissa, for your last shot at our wonderful audience. Um, what was the thought or question that you uh, wish that I had uh, uh, extracted from you earlier. Uh, thank you. Thank you, David. Um, and it's been very inspiring to hear uh, what Ronnie and Cecilia have to say about the future of impact as well as innovation. And I think if we want to be able to see a world in which those uh, ideas flourish, one of the things we have to think about for philanthropy writ large, writ large is another R, and that's the word risk. I think those of us who are in philanthropy, whether as advisors or as foundation leaders or as impact investors or as donors, have to be willing and comfortable uh, meeting the moment by taking more risk than we may have been used to taking with some of the work we do. And that risk may mean uh, having um, additional trust in nonprofits to uh, use funding well and not constricting them and constraining them too much, to make longer-term commitments to deal with long-term issues, uh, to be part of collaboratives where you may need to give up some control in order to enhance the impact that you might have, and just to think about new ideas and new ways of accomplishing the goals uh, that, that speak to the values that you have. Yeah, thanks so much for that. And and uh, I heard you talk about collaborations. Makes a lot of sense to me that if foundations and donors generally are going to undertake more risk, that um, if they can share that risk with other institutions, they may be more likely to do so. So I thanks very much for being part of this panel and for all of your answers, Melissa, and for your wonderful collaboration with our company as well. So now Cecilia, uh, you are the cleanup hitter. <laughs> and uh, what what would you like to leave with us? Um, <clears throat> I was going to pick up actually on the topic of collaboration and the ways in which we've seen collaboration through the work we've been doing on the part of both organizations where sometimes by actually committing up front for a very large grant over multiple years, you can incentivize organizations to come together who might otherwise see themselves as competing for a limited pool of philanthropic dollars. We've also seen real value in collaboration among donors uh, who share, we, are, we share information about the projects that we have uncovered the great ideas and donors have been stepping up uh, to help to fund them. So in one instance, a single grant from MacArthur of 100 million has generated another 200 million from other sources. So there is real power in that collaboration and opportunity to have a really lasting and significant impact to make the world a better place. 
Thanks so much, Cecilia, and congratulations to you and the MacArthur Foundation for the significant uh, difference that you're making in the world. And many thanks to all three panelists. Uh, you are truly inspiring, uh, each in your different spheres of endeavor. Uh, and it has been my great pleasure uh, to be the moderator here today. And it is now my uh, also great pleasure to turn it back to you, Greg, to um, end this session. Great, uh, David, thank you so much. That was a, a fantastic job. Uh, and I have to say, it really was a pleasure to sit back uh, and listen to uh, three panelists of that quality and yourself on issues that are important and impactful to all of us. Uh, and Ronnie, Melissa, and Cecilia, many thanks for your time, for your expertise, for your candor, and for your thoughtfulness. We started this series of uh, interviews with experts and people who have uh, so much to bring to our clients during this historic time as a way to differentiate the dialogue that we at Rockefeller Capital Management have with our clients. And we call the series Uniquely Rockefeller. And our ability to uh, bring uh, ideas and topics to our clients that uh, they're not going to find everywhere as a function of the ability to bring people like uh, the three of you and David on uh, and, and have you do what you did today. So uh, I can't thank you enough on behalf of uh, our colleagues at Rockefeller Capital Management and all of our clients and other friends of Rockefeller. Now, I always do close out with a quotation uh, in any speaking event that I do and have done so for many years, as those who've listened to the first 11 episodes of this will uh, know and remember. Uh, and just to show you how hand in glove David and I are, uh, we didn't rehearse the fact that I picked Albert Einstein uh, <laughs> as the individual I wanted to quote at the end of the session today uh, in a quotation that he made that is relevant to Ronnie, uh, Melissa, Cecilia, and David, uh, as well as really to the Rockefeller family over so many generations, given all that Ronnie said so well all they have done on so many fronts uh, across American society. So Albert Einstein said the following, uh, and these are words I'd like uh, all to take with them today. He said, uh, quote, only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. It is every man's obligation to put back into the world at least the equivalent of what he takes out of it, end quote. So uh, with those words uh, as our tailwind, with our uh, thanks and gratitude again for all four of your time and expertise today, we wish all of our clients who are listening at Rockefeller Capital Management and those who will listen later on the podcast series, our colleagues and all friends of Rockefeller, a great and happy weekend. All the best.